Well, good morning to all of you. We'll try that again. Good morning to all of you. Bible says greet one another. How you greet is your choice. But we have to greet. You don't have to kiss me, but you have to greet me. Otherwise, it's disobedience. Well, without further ado, please take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. When Daniel asked me to take this morning, I figured since we are so much in the New Testament, you should maybe balance that out and take a trip to the Old Testament. See, if you can find your way to the book of Daniel, and we'll start reading from chapter 1 and verse 1. Reading from the English Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drinks, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you will endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Ahead of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fat in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. May the Lord lost a portion of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we come again to you this morning in utter dependence, 
of your spirit in order to equip us, and to guide us, and to lead us in your word. Lord, we pray for this sermon this morning. We pray that your word may go forth, but more than that, that it will go forth rightly divided to your glory. May those who will hear be edified by your word as your spirit seeks to apply it to all of our individual lives as we seek to lift up lives in your honor and in glory to magnify your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. Now it has been said that every man in this world has its price. That's the point at which any man or any woman is willing to sell out. The point where every man is ready to cave, to not stand firm. The point where every man and woman seeks to or will deny his or her Lord. There's a point where some are ready to let go for some kind of personal gain. In our own nation, politicians is no doubt a better, one excellent example of this. Our nation is a nation that is plagued by men who easily compromise what supposed ethics they might have professed, all for personal gain. So-called sports heroes, I know better, they get into the action too. And you would remember a few years back of Han Chi Kronji, who was at the top of his sports game. And for the point of personal experience and personal gain, compromised his own supposed conviction. In fact, in an uncompromising life in this world, and so much more for the Christian, does leave an indelible mark on your life. And it will, whether good or bad. I suppose the question we want to answer this morning is, what kind of stain or mark do you want him to be known by? And to be sure, there are many men who are willing, willing to pay the price for compromise or non-compromise. Many will cave if the price is right. Every man has its price. But it should not be true or said of us as believers. We are to be those men and women in this world who do not have a price. Now the cost to live in an uncompromised life in a compromised world is very real. And that is the title of our sermon this morning. How to live an uncompromised life in a compromised world. And the cost to do that is very real. It will leave an mark on your life. I mean, think of Martin Luther who before the diet of worms had either to recant his convictions or had to lose his life. He lost his life. Think of Latimer, Ridley, Knox, men who did not compromise while standing at the stake ready to be burnt. They considered the cost of an uncompromised life. Guess what they did? Burnt at the stake. And we have many counts in church history. Families who stood in a stadium in Nero's reign. Mothers with their children. Deny your Lord or die or be eaten today by lions. 
where children would look into their parents with teary eyes, what is going to happen? Parents with children moving into near a stadium and being eaten alive because they would not compromise. The story of Richard Cameron came on my desk recently. Richard Cameron was a preacher in the eight or late 1600s. It is said that in 1678 he was licensed to preach and loud crowds came to hear him. But he soon got in trouble for preaching against ministers who had accepted the indulgences. He then went to Holland for a few months where he was ordained as a minister by members of the Scottish Church. He came back to Scotland two months after the Battle of Bothwell Bridge in 1679, only to find that the ministers had stopped preaching in the fields as they saw it as too dangerous for both them and the people. Cameron, however, saw it as his duty to preach the gospel no matter what might happen and preach at a convectacle in November. 3,000 people came to hear God's will preach. The next Lord's Day, even more people came to hear. Despite his life being in constant danger, Cameron kept on preaching. On the 22nd of June, 1680, it is said, exactly a year after the defeat at Bothwell Bridge, Cameron and 20 horsemen rode into the town of Shangawa, where they sung a psalm and read out a document known as the Sangawa Declaration. In it, Cameron and his followers rejected the authority of Charles II. Why? Because he had broken the covenant and ruled badly. They also, as representatives of the nation of Scotland, as well as the church, declared war on him as an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. A month later, 120 government dragoons caught up with Cameron and 62 of his followers at Arismos. Before the battle, Cameron prayed, Lord Spare the green and take the right. Cameron's men fought like madmen, it said. And 28 of the dragoons were killed, compared to only nine covenanters. But in the end, the dragoons won, and Cameron and his brother Michael lay dead. The dragoons cut off Cameron's head and hands, and in an act of terrible cruelty, took them to his father who was in prison for the same crimes in Edinburgh and asked him if he knew that. Imagine, for preaching, they come with the head of your son and his hands. Do you know this? Old Alan Cameron replied, I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy follow us all our days. That is the response of a man sold out to God that having considered the cost would still not compromise. But equally so, there are many Christians who would compromise. There are many who love to boast about their own moral virtue, many who can talk the game, yet for the purposes of their own experience, would easily sell out 
if the pressures are mounting. There are many here today who sit in unbiblical churches, yet loudly profess to love the truth, and in particular the God of the truth, yet they remain in those churches for purposes of expediency. Men who hold to an uncompromising standard in the church today are sorely lacking. Many who loudly boast about their righteous lives quickly abandon their convictions when compromise is more beneficial and expedient. People claim convictions about sin and punishment, but only up until it involves their own children or close family and friends. Then those very convictions they so loudly proclaimed yesterday began to drift. And they become masters of rationalizing their compromise. What's worse is that many will sacrifice their convictions. They will abscond from the hill they last week professed to die on in order for the sake of some misconstrued view of Christian liberty or to be considered as makers of peace. Let's keep the peace, they say. Those very people will refrain from speaking out or from saying what needs to be said for fear of losing face, popularity, acceptance, or they might even stand to gain something in the not-too-distant future if they just keep quiet and do not speak out. And so on and so on goes the compromise. And scriptures is full of typical accounts such as these. Adam compromised the law of God, followed his wife's sin, and lost paradise. And as a result, duped the entire human race into sin. Moses compromised God's law, lost the privilege of entering the promised land. Saul compromised God's divine standard and word by not slaying the animals of his enemy. He lost the kingdom. David compromised lest him to lost his infant son in 2 Samuel 11. Solomon compromised his convictions, married foreign women, lost the United Kingdom. And we can go on and on. Judas, Peter, Ananias and Sapphira, Sansom, Abraham. The list goes on. And what we know is that in each of these cases, the result of the compromise was that they lost something of real value in exchange for something so temporary and now fulfilling. And today, in the evangelical community, this is no different. Churches and seminaries who once stood as the bastions for the authority and inerrancy of scriptures have compromised their convictions and lost being a voice of God within evangelicalism. Think of Princeton Seminary, who once was the bastion of biblical inerrancy when men like Hodges and Warfield was there. Yet later in their history, they would have men that seemingly hold into conservative traditional values, professed a willingness to be swayed by new facts concerning biblical inerrancy at the time. Fuller Seminary was another bastion in its heyday. Today, they are a complete waste of space as an institution with the dancers in liberalism. That's the result of the compromised life. So how do we maintain or build an arsenal in our lives to not go down that road? How do we foster a culture 
if you will, of non-compromise. We're going to go to Daniel. And Daniel is going to give us seven identifiable reasons or things that we should cultivate or do in order to not compromise. Now, as we begin in Daniel, and as we read Daniel, we find ourselves in the very first Babylonian captivity during the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. We get that from verse 1. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. It was a discipline from the hand of God unto Israel. Now the exile, as we start this, is the historical basis for the ensuing narrative. This is the first Babylonian captivity under Jehoiakim, when Daniel and his friends were carried away. The second one we know was in 589 BC, when Jehoiakim and Ezekiel were carried away. The third one in 588 BC, a few years later, when Jedekiah was carried away. And that followed the desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. Now this exile is ultimately a turning point in the history of the theocracy. You would remember that before this, Israel was a nation. Continuously being disciplined by God for their disobedience. The kingdom has split already by this time. The northern kingdom was dispersed. The only one that we thought there was some hope when you read through the Old Testament was the southern kingdom. Those nations, the kingdom of Judah, and yet they also went down the route of the northern kingdom. And so God disciplines them for their disobedience. And they get taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so we find out that the king is now saying, look, you need to go to back to the Judah and I want you to go get some people. And the king's orders in verse 3 and verse 4 is this. Then the king commanded Asphanasi, chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, the king's orders we want to look at. So first of all, we get the standard of how the world chooses. We say, use without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place. And from that, what we got is a three-triple standard, or a triple standard of what the world does when nature's people. First of all, we see it must be used without any physical blemish. These were to be used that is physically healthy and beautiful. In other words, the command to Asphanas is go back, get the best of the royal family, of the nobility, the best-looking and well-formed, viral, handsome young men. Now at this point, you have to understand that Daniel and his friends are very young. Easily in the ages between 14 and 17, commentators estimate their age to be at this time. So this is not old men like the picture books would try to let you believe. This is young boys, high school age. And Asphanas has to go and get them. 
they have to be beautiful. And they have to be pretty. Why? Because when somebody that's pretty speaks to you, you tend to be listen more than when somebody that is not pretty speaks to you. People get the reaction, you know. Smooth, cute boys. And it's the kind of boys that tingles a concert goes insane for. You know those concerts with those little teen boy bands and they come, they don't even have hair on their faces yet, they're cute, they're pretty, they're going down, they sing over the mic, guess what, you see those girls, they, they go absolutely insane. They can tell them anything and they will sing anything what these boys are singing. Even some of them might be in church on Sunday morning, Saturday night they sing anything that goes against the church because the boys sang it. And so the king is not, he's not being... He's not a stupid person. He knows what he's doing. But it highlights, and it's typical of how the world chooses people. It's always image over substance, right? First, it's their physical features. And secondly, watch that it's their brains. Not just beauty, but brains too. And that's the focus of this world. The physical and the mental. Skillful in wisdom, it says. And school, skillful in wisdom, by the way, here means to be superior intellectually. Highly intelligent with an ability to make good decisions. They had to be gifted in knowledge. That means superior in education. And they were superior in education because they were of nobility. Of the royal family. This wasn't communists. This wasn't us. It was those who understood how science works. The Hebrew term here has the idea of being able to correlate. That's, that's science. That's, that's, in correlation, it's about know the facts, apply the facts, and then correlate the facts. That's science right there. To draw conclusions from the correlation of data. Now watch this. They also had the ability to stand in the king's place. And that points to a third aspect. First, it was physical. It had to be beautiful. Then it was mental. They had to be intelligent. And then the third aspect indicates they had to have the poise. Uh, the manner and the social graces to stand in the king's place. You saw those programs. And when I read this, I'm like, oh boy, I'm, I'm, I'm dead in the water. I don't qualify any bit for any of these things. I mean, there's no category there. I qualify. I'm dead in the water. You know, I, might, I might push my luck for the first and the second one. That, that's a push. <laughs> but you get to the third one, I'm gone. You know? I mean, I, I see these people eat with 10 forks and 20 knives and eat vegetable in that plate as its own fork and knife. Man, jeez, I eat with my hand. I come from Yilam. I grew up Afrikaans. What do you mean? Give me a chicken bone in my hand. I mean, my wife always didn't marry me because of my table manners. <laughs> now, that was a big deal. You know, I, I, I will never forget, and I'll tell, tell you the story. It was at Mark Christopher's, our, our previous pastor's 40th birthday. I'll never forget this. And so we were invited. The only one that was, that's here that was there that I can remember was for myself, Denver and Gaynor. Now, for some reason, they had this fancy event and that tables in the lounge and they served food. This famous caterer today, I can't get to her name, but, but she was doing the catering. And um, for some reason, they didn't place me at the table where Denver's Gaynor was sitting. I was hoping they would because at least I know some people around the table. And so we got there, they were sitting at one table, I was sitting alone with people that I didn't know from a bar's place. I didn't know who these people were. They came from the northern suburbs. It was fancy people. It was great people with certain poison grace. And I, I'm like, I'm from Elam, like, really? And so what has happened was they put this meat and food 
in the middle of the table and so you had to dish up for yourself. And so there was knives and forks. And this was really new to me. That was years ago. And uh, I remember taking the chicken in my plate. I mean, chicken. I'm going to eat chicken. But then everybody in my table started to eat the chicken with knives and forks. And I'm like, really? Drumstick? Knives and forks? Come on. Don't do stuff like that. But what has happened was, what they didn't tell me was the chicken on top of that was cold. So it was difficult to eat it with a knife and a fork. Nonetheless, I proceeded to take my fork and I put it down into that drumstick and I'm like, yeah, you, you, you better stay still. You know, because it was moving in the plate. I came with my knife because I was watching what everybody else was doing. And as I, as I went down with my knife, guess what happened? The chicken got wings. And the chicken flew up in it and, and flew. It literally flew. And I'm like, and, and I don't know if the people at the table saw it. I pretended to not see it. I quickly grabbed another piece and put it in my plate like it never flew away. And I, I think eventually somebody picked up the chicken on the floor. Um, it wasn't me. You know, I, I, I proceeded to just eat the small pieces and left most of the chicken away. I'm not, the chicken got wings. But this is not me. You know, and so these boys had to have a specific pose about them. So they had to be intelligent, they had to be beautiful, and they had to have a specific grace of how they conduct themselves in the royalty. But that's the world standard, like we said. That's how the world looks at people. Uh, physical, mental, and social graces. They, they don't care about character. They don't care about your spiritual qualities, about your virtues, about your moral code, your resolves, your standards. They don't care. The goal was the smartest, prettiest, most well-behaved boys. And guess what? We are going to indoctrinate them into model children. Now the part thickens. Watch this 4B. Youths in all wisdom of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, Competent to stand in the king's palace, and then this, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So we're gonna we're gonna change them. We're gonna change their names. We're gonna change their religion. We're gonna change the education of what they've been taught. We're going to eliminate everything that they have been taught. This is the goal. This is the plot. And we're gonna change what they eat for breakfast. And so it's intent. Mass indoctrination is about to happen and to eviscerate the place of Yahweh in the lives of these youths. Now it should be immediately evident to anyone with a little bit of Hebrew knowledge that these Jewish names of each of these men contains a name of God and has a spiritual meaning. You can see that in verse 10, for example, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Both Daniel and Mishael both contain the syllable E-L at the end, which means God. The name of Daniel means God is my judge. I'm accountable to Him only. You'll see why later. Mishael means who is like God. The other two names, Hananiah and Azariah, both contain a shortened form of the name of Yahweh. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. So these very names of these men were reminders of their heritage and a challenge to them to remain faithful to the Lord. Now, their new names are given all contain a reference to one of the false gods of the ancient Babylonians, Aku and Nigo. It was a way of saying that these who had been servants of the Jewish God were now servants and worshippers of the gods of the pagan world. Daniel, Belshazzar, 
From God is my judge to Belshazzar meaning Baal provides. Hananiah meaning God is gracious now becomes Shadrach, the command of the God Aku was the moon god. Mishael, who is like God, now becomes Meshach, meaning who is what Aku is. Azariah, which means the Lord is my helper, now becomes Abednego, which is servant of Nego or Nebo. But as we shall see in a moment, these name changes accomplish really nothing. I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar could change their names, but he could not change their hearts. And as the narrative unfolds, we will see that they remain faithful to the true God of Israel nonetheless. But why? So for three solid years, we're going to change the names, we're going to re-educate them. So for three solid years, we're going to have them complete their bachelors in Chaldean literature and theology. We're going to wipe out everything they know and believe about God and retrain them. That's the goal. And that's not the agenda of modern day education. Get rid of God. Let us eviscerate God out of the minds of these young people. Let them question everything that they were taught to believe. Endow them with the sophistication of the Chaldean learning system. I mean, that's UCT right there. Look, from the time your children get into the education system, what's the goal? What is the goal? The goal is to indoctrinate them with a humanistic, atheistic worldview. Devoid of any mention or concept of God and to deliver in these young people a set of values engineered by Satan to eliminate God out of the picture and produce minds that are brainwashed to serve their satanic agenda. That's the plot. And that was no different for these youths. Number six was notice something. It says verse six. Among these, now watch this, among these were Daniel, Hannah, and I. Now what does this mean? Catch this. What does it imply? It means that there were many more. They went to go fetch a lot more boys. But among those boys, verse 6, were David and his friends. I mean, come and take this generally in green as a speculation that there easily was about 60 to 70 young people. But regardless of that, only four, only four would not compromise. Only four, the rest, gone. So, What's the first lesson? The first lesson we see in verse 10. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So your first lesson is this. Make a decision. Decide not to compromise. In other words, make up your mind. When temptation comes, when it comes to the point where you might have to compromise or not compromise, you need to make decisions today or having had made that decision already to decide not to compromise. Now Daniel's resolve in verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he will not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. This is perhaps the most important verse in the first section of Daniel. Now remember again, Daniel was a very young boy at this point. Now the imperfect tense of that Hebrew word resolve suggests that it was an habitual or customary action on the part of Daniel to not compromise his conviction. In other words, this was a lifestyle of Daniel. This wasn't something on the spur of the moment that he suddenly decides, oh, I'm not going to compromise. No, his lifestyle, that his habit was that he will not live a compromised life. His resolve did not just occur at the moment. 
It is not a one-time thing. It was part of his fabric, his being. His devotion to his God was non-negotiable as a part of who he is. And the Hebrew would suggest it was a decided resolution to abstain from defilement. Now look at what was his resolve. So he made that choice. He says, I'm choosing, and I'm, this is my resolve, that I will not defile myself. I will not pollute. I will not desecrate who I am as a person. That's the idea of the noun. It has the idea of your inner person, your being, your, your determination, your intention, your courage. The text literally conveys the idea that Daniel literally said it upon his heart not to defile himself. It refers to his inner resolve. Now notice, it's not too much the physical instruments of the food and the wine that will do these things. That will defile himself. In a sense, it will, but that's not the point. The point here is it's the act of compromise as to his convictions that will do the defilement. That is where he draws the line. So you've got to make a choice. What kind of Christian you want to be? Now he goes on in number two. The second point is you need to have an unashamed boldness. You need to have an unashamed boldness. You see where you get that from. He says, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he will not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. In the question, a young boy, 14, 15 years old, here's the older guy, the king gave orders. I mean, this is the king speaking, a foreign king nonetheless. He knows how it works in the kingdoms. If the king says something, you better do it. Otherwise, the king can become angry and takes your head off. And how many people, when he gets to that point, are going to raise up their hand and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't disagree. That's wrong. It goes against my convictions. Daniel went and he asked, I can't do this. I need not to do this. He had an unashamed boldness to go and say, I'm sorry. And, and watch what he's done. He doesn't take the easy way out. He was not ambiguous in his discussion with Asphanas. He went straight to the heart of the issue. He will not defile himself. And this is where most Christians who compromise fails. They lack in boldness. They lack in having the courage to speak up and say no. And so they are being captured by the fear of men. They find all sort of flimsy, ambiguous explanations as to why they agree to certain choices. What does Proverbs 29, 25 says? The fear of man brings a snare. You see, most people, Christians in particular, are intimidated by what others will say. Especially those with a certain level of influence over them. For many Christians, the opinion of their friends, their co-workers, their parents, fellow believers matters more to them than what the scripture demands. And so Daniel, with his trust in his God, proceeds to boldly ask Asphanas not to defile himself. And, and, and the, the Hebrew verb there gives us the idea or the form of the Hebrew verb seems to indicate that it was not just a mere asking, it was very intense. He was so serious about not to compromise. And so it's very intense. In fact, you see it. Aspenas told him, you want to do what now? And go get lost. I'm not doing you want. You want the king to take my head off? And Daniel didn't retreat. He didn't say, I apologize. I at least tried. 
I will not compromise. No, he went back. And he tried to negotiate and made a deal and give him an ultimatum. So Daniel made a point. He's not going to eat of the king's food. Now, you say, wait, wait, wait a minute. I say, well, what is the big deal? I mean, why in the world would you say yes to the education? You say yes to the name change, but you say no to the food. I mean, don't you switch it around? I mean, I'm at the moment playing in a service band in a city. Guess what? Somebody asked me, what is the thing that you look forward to the most when you do events? I'm like, bro, the food. Whenever we do events, there's a lot of food. And I love the food. I'm like, Daniel, what are you doing? Really? I mean, the, the homeschooling legalist goes crazy at this point in time. Education, and you submit yourself to that? You don't say no to that, but you say no to the food? Why? What, 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 think about it. Why does he say yes? He doesn't oppose the education. He doesn't oppose the name change. But he opposed the food? What's the deal? Here's the clincher. Here's the clincher. Because of what it represents. Because of what it represents. You see, for starters, education more than likely wasn't all evil. I mean, sometimes they maybe have learned some science kind of stuff. It wasn't rooted in evolution. In particularly, many of us came through secular education. And we, for the most part, came out fairly fine. Right? More importantly, if you have a strong biblical grid through which you can filter the world's education, you, you should be fine for the most. I mean, the point is, secular education, for the most part, is not 100% bad, especially if you have parents that can assist you navigating through what is of God and what is not of God. It's yes, a lot of hard work. You're going to have to undo a lot of stuff that getting taught your children, especially in today's life. Somebody asked me the question the other day, am I going to homeschool? And I said, well, look, I mean, if, if anyone is going to mess up my child, better than me. He, he's probably going to be messed up. But any education system, or me at least, if I send him to the education system, I, I can feel bad. But if it's me, well, you know, God gave me you as a father. I gave me to you as a father. So, I mean, that, that, that's the deal. So if, if anybody's going to mess him up, it's going to be me. So it's, it isn't us to really complain about that. And, and the name change, meh, no, that's, that's okay. But you see, it's partaking of the world's delicacies that corrupts us. Partaking of the king's delicacies signifies partaking in the lifestyle of these people. Live like they live. Eat the things they eat. Do the things they do. You see, being immersed into, into the world's lifestyle pollutes us more than the world's education system. You can still escape the effects of the education system. You can go to the universities and still come out fine. You being immersed into the culture, to the way they do things, to the way they, they live lives, you are gone. And also, let me tell you why I chose not to partake. Because of the prohibition contained in Scripture. Now notice, there's no strict prohibition in Scripture to change your name. God gave you names, but there's no strict prohibition. There's nothing that says you can't change your name. No prohibition. Also, the same could be said for learning from others. Again, no strict prohibition for receiving secular education. We tell that to the homeschooling legalists. 
The only three prohibitions in scripture for Daniel and his friends, a Jews precisely had to do with the things that they eat or drink. It had to be kosher, first of all. And it had to be food not offered to idols, which is something we know from Babylonian history, that the king's food was always connected in some shape or form with the gods. And so the Lord Moses told them that as a Jew, you should not and could not eat food offered to idols. In other words, Daniel drew the line in the sand of non-compromise based on what the Word of God says. Did you get that? The character of the uncompromised life of Daniel and his friends, then as you'll see in a moment, even more, is to draw the lines in your life where the Word of God draws them. Listen to Micaiah the prophet. And you don't have to turn there. First Kings 22, and just listen to this. First Kings chapter 22. Beautiful sort of Micaiah. Let me go to verse 14. Now verse 13. And, and what's going on is these guys want to go to war. Oh, yeah. They want to go to war and they're like, okay, what does the prophet say? And the prophet tells them, God is saying is, you're going to have victory, proceed. Go, go, go to war. It's, it's fine, go to war. And Ahab says, you know, well, Zedekiah actually says, is there a people that can, that can tell us what's going on? Is there somebody else? And when I mean, all the prophets prophesied said, and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger was sent to summon Micaiah said to them, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. In other words, say what others are saying. He said, like, Call this prophet. All the other prophets are saying the same thing. Democracy rules. Say what they say. Tell the king you can go to war. God says you can go to war. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. Go, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, and he goes from there. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I will speak. That's what Daniel does. So what are we learning? That the heart of an uncompromising life rests on your belief in the authority in the absolute standard of God's word. You ask, so brother, where, where, where do I draw the line? I don't want to be petty. How do I decide on which things I should take a stand on? You want to answer? Here it is. You draw the line. Which scripture draws the line? And here's what's more crucial. These guys were away from home. There was no one around to check and discipline them. There was no mother who says, you better not eat of that food. They were 14, 15, 16 years old. And it was the king. You don't disobey the king. But he would not, as a young boy, defile who he is as a person by being disobedient to the word of his God. That goes to the heart of an uncompromised life. Where the Bible draws a line, that is where you have to draw them to. When the Bible says something, do not compromise on that. Hold on your convictions and do not sell it 
for some personal gain on your experience. So that is the life of Daniel. We get to meet him in the first chapter. And God blesses those faithfulness. We read it in the rest of the chapter that God gave him that grace. God gave him the education. God gave him the intelligence. Our next event, we see a similar scenario portraying with us for Daniel and his friends in chapter 3. Let's go with me to chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, an image, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here's what a king does. King sets up a golden image, a golden statue. He says, you got to worship the statue. Much like what we might anticipate in a coming world one day. Sets up the statue, says, pray before it. And what he says, look, you're going to hear music. You have to act when the music plays. You go down, you bow down, and you do it. Verses 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, when they hear the music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the face of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego he be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have some respect for them, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, listen, I'm going to give you a second chance. If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and worship the golden image that you have set up. And King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and fury, and the expression of his face was changed towards them. And in order that the furnace be heated seven more times, and it was usually heated, and you know the rest of the story, they were cast into the furnace. finish. These three things that gave them the strength to stand strong, why did they refuse? Again, they counted the cost. They knew this is more than likely death. And nothing is clear in their response to King Nebuchadnezzar than this. The God we serve is able to save us. And if he chooses to do so, he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Here's the point. The third point of being an uncompromised person is to know your God. Know your God. They knew that their God was sovereign. They said it. The God we serve is able to save us. If he chooses to do so. That means 
there is no guarantee that they will escape this. They might die, they might not die, and it said as much. If our God does not deliver us, then so be it. But even so, we will still not serve your gods. So their faith in God did not rest on the belief that He will perform a miracle, but that the sovereign God could be trusted. They asserted that if God chose not to deliver them from this punishment, but instead allowed them to become martyrs for Him, they would still refuse to serve the king's gods or worship the golden statue. I mean, this is no very abstract speculation. This is faith in a furnish. It conveys a firm and deep conviction of the sovereignty of God in the midst of going into the fire. Young men shows a deep devotion and a deep appreciation for knowing their God. You cannot expect to stand strong. You cannot expect to stand firm. You cannot act, as Paul said it, like men in the midst of those moments if you do not know your God. There were no rational here. There were no display of worldly wisdom to preserve their lives. They didn't say, well, maybe just for now, but because we have to be useful in the future. No. Their focus was their God. Listen, without knowing your God, it is going to be exceedingly hard to stand immovable when the cost of a non-compromising life is dangled before you. In both of those occasions, death was waiting on the other side of the door. In the beginning, when you consider church history of all those men that did not compromise, paid with their life. If that's the cost on the other side, and you do not know your God, you're not going to stand. And I'm not talking about knowing about God, but knowing Him. When people know their God, losses and crosses cease to matter for them. For when you know your God, it will cultivate great boldness in your life for God. It will cultivate expanding knowledge of God. Fourthly, and will haste. They knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. This is the reason why they refused to bow down. God forbid it. You will not bow down to what? Golden images. They knew what the law said. They know the word. They know the scriptures. And, and so important because how does moral or worse doctrinal test come into us in black and white terms? And if you follow the fall of many evangelical institutions that was bastions of the faith, precisely fell when they dabbled with those appeared insignificant doctrinal issues. Princeton, Fuller, fell when they tampered with the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Churches today fall and get ensnared by the wisdom of the world. So many have fallen prey to the prejudice of pop psychology. So many churches would rather go to psychology as the answer for all life's problems than the Word. Because they don't know it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is supposed to be the pillar and the support or the anchor of the truth. That is what the church is supposed to be. But how can the church live up that responsibility when Christians do not even know the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith? Is it any wonder that compromise today is so rampant within the Christian church? 
Have Christians cave in so easily because they do not even know the basic doctrines of the Bible? You go to many churches. You ask them any question on a basic fundamental, they can't answer you. Ask them what is the gospel. They preach the gospel in the trains. They preach the gospel on the buses. You ask them, so what is the gospel? They can't answer you. It's, 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 well, no, what is the gospel? They can't even answer a simple question. The problem is that many Christians today think of theology as something reserved for only a special class of men in the church. For many Christians today, an intense study of the nature and the character of God are considered impractical and unnecessary for life. In many evangelical churches, the enrollment to more intense studies are exceedingly low, even in our own church. Participation rates to do more in-depth studies into the nature and the character of God, the inherency of Scripture, the person and nature of Christ, is atonement alarmingly low. Is it any wonder that there is a correlation between compromise and the absent, diligent study of God's Word with those periods where the study of theology was part of being a Christian? An era when men died for their convictions? Is it any one of the day that Christians compromised at an alarming rate at the time precisely when an interest into the detailed study of Scripture are so low? In those eras, the study of theology was things that all Christians did. We studied. Read Spurgeon. Read J.A. Packer knowing God and you'll get the idea. Today we don't. We say that's not for us. It's not for the average Christian. It's for some people. Churches goers today seldom would give their life for the truth. They don't even know it. Many will not even stand for the truth and unashamed conviction and boldness because someone else's feelings might get hurt or they might get offended. People, people compromise in order to preserve people's feelings from getting hurt. What do you think is going to happen when death is waiting on the other side? If they can't even take a stand, regardless if people's feelings get upset, they will never take a stand if death sways at the other side. They'll compromise. You will compromise. And the notion of battling for the truth of Scripture is so far from the mind of many churchgoers today. The goal of many churches now is to pack pews and have people like them. To collaborate is the in thing. Unity, at best false unity, is far more important for the church than taking a stand for the truth of Scripture. For many to be a person of influence is far more important. And they will readily compromise where scripture draws a line. For them, nothing is more unchristian than when someone shows a sincere concern for what someone else's belief or holds to. And to even bring up that there's a danger of heresy even in seed form in someone else's teaching. They will take offense. I love what J.F. Packer has to say in his book, Knowing God. He says this, listen, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. See, that's just one of the main reasons these youth stood firm. Was because in that moment, they could triumph because their minds were filled with scriptures. They knew scripture. They knew what the law says. You shall not worship the golden image. Regardless. And they hold to what the Bible teaches of considering the cost. Church today don't do it. We don't, we don't want to study the Bible. We want to know it. 
We don't, we, we hear certain phrases throwing around and we're like, no, that, that's not for me. I don't want to know the intricate details of the sovereignty of God. Don't, don't bother me or bore me with the doctrine of election. And yet when somebody comes with an aberrant view or teaching, they cave and compromise because they do not even know what the truth is concerning the matter. So how dangerous is compromise on the truth of Scripture? Listen to Spurgeon. Biblical truth, he says, is like the pinnacle of a steep, slippery mountain. That's biblical truth. Right on top. And the mountain is slippery. One step away, and you find yourself on the downgrade. And once a church or individual Christian gets on the downgrade, momentum takes over. And history has proven that. If you consider the articles of the downgrade, which Schindler wrote in Spurgeon's day, and there was a series of articles about the downgrade controversy. Eventually, Spurgeon was kicked out of the Baptist Union for his stand. And notice, the, the, as the nations or generations went on from, from the Puritan era, there was a decay, and it was an era of people moving and drifting and drifting and drifting and drifting further away from the absolute truth of God's word. And we see many churches cave in. I mean, the Presbyterian movement today is gone. And where's the Baptist Union today? All lost to the new theology of the time. The history has shown our false doctrine, worldliness, dangling with theological liberalism, have ransacked and ravaged many once evangelical mainland churches to fatal outcomes because they did not consider the importance of knowing the Word of God. Fifthly, and we'll finish, they were willing to die for their convictions. They were willing to die for their convictions. Why is such a willingness important when it comes to matters of compromise? Because knowing and believing God is sovereign, knowing Scripture intimately in what it is that God requires, at certain times might cost you your life. Sure, and look, many of us might not even face that dilemma. We might not face death on the other side. We might face unemployment. You might face isolation, loneliness. And if you won't even pay the price for that, many will not pay the price because of popularity, loneliness, ridicule, persecution, at worst, economic hardship. Many will not. Some people do pay for their faith. But sometimes God intervenes to spare his servants. Sometimes God does. He, he spared the three young men in the story. He might spare you. He might not. So, you have to stand strong. You have to stand strong. I'll give you one more. Number six, avoid a rationalistic exception to compromise and practice your faith openly. Avoid a rationalistic exception to compromise and practice your faith openly. Go to chapter six, and we'll end with this. Daniel. At this point in his life, Daniel is far older. He's about 80 years old, you know, or could be slightly older. But he's an old man. He's not a young man anymore. Look at verse 1. It pleased Darius. This is now a new king. Uh, Darius was in charge. He said, over the kingdom, 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and 
satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Look at where Daniel happened to Daniel since his heyday. And the president and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaints against Daniel. They hated him. It grew jealousy. They sought to find a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine being in such a place that your enemies literally says, we can find no fault in him. That the only way we can treat him is to count on his obedience to his God. Imagine that. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Why? Because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And their response in verse 5 clearly indicates that Daniel's faithfulness was so public and so well known that the only way to bring an onslaught to him is to engineer something where they knew he will fail or fall into the trap since they knew he will never be unfaithful to his God or disobeying God. What a, what a remarkable testimony. What a remarkable testimony. Now, what's Daniel's response? So they set up a trap. They said, well, look, just for 30 days, just for 30 days, no one should be allowed to pray. You can't pray in public. Just don't do it. And if, and if, you, if you don't do the injunction, you're going to be fed to the lions. Look at verses 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, king, there is signed agreement. Verse 10, Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got in on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel didn't say, you know what? Look, this is 30 days. It's 30 days only. They don't want me to pray to their God? Fine. I'll close my windows. I'll close my doors. I'll do it in secret. I'll do it in private. Nobody's going to know. I'm not going to be public about this. Daniel doesn't do that. He didn't respond by saying, well, you know, let me reason this out. I usually do this. this is, I usually go up there, open my windows. This is what I do. Now look toward Jerusalem, which is what the Jews done. They looked toward Jerusalem and they prayed. I mean, I'm always doing this. So, so let me compromise on that consistency. On my convictions. Nobody's going to know. It's only for 30 days. Isn't, isn't that the way people reason the things out? But you see the character of an uncompromising man is that he is consistent. Take note of that last word in verse 10. Just as he had done before. This was his pattern, his lifestyle. He does not deviate. More importantly, he's public and very vocal about his faith. 
There's no element of attempting to rationalize a way out of the pickle, out of a difficult situation. There's no thought or aspect in Daniel's response where he's trying to compromise his convictions. He's going to pray in open. And guess what? I mean, really, Daniel? And what's waiting on the other side? Lion food. And is this not precisely what happened just a few years ago during the entire COVID saga? How many cave? How many churches close their doors by using a rationalistic response? Well, we can meet in secret. We can meet online for fear of men. How many failed in their response to not meet as scripture demands? How many churches and believers compromised their convictions? Worse, how many were exposed for not having convictions grounded in scripture in the first place? How many were reasoning that we're doing out of love? We don't want to die. We don't want other people to die so we don't meet. Daniel's saying, I want to become lion food. Guess what I'm going to do? Not in secret. I'm praying in public. I'm being open about it. I'm going to be in your face. I'm going to go upstairs. You want to all see me. I'm going to open the windows. Yeah, I want you to see me. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you. I'm praying to my God. I won't want cave. I won't want compromise. People might have died in COVID. They said, we close our doors. We, we, we need to do whatever we need to do to preserve our life. Preserving our life was far more important to many than obedience to their God. And they came with all sorts of kind of reasons to rationalize their disobedience. And it is what it is. They compromised. They were disobedient to their God. Now, at this time in Daniel's life, he was most likely all alone. His friends most probably were dead or moved to other parts of the empire. Either way, at this point in the story, we didn't see them around anymore. And for the rest of the book, there are no way to, around to support him like he did in the very first time. In any case, Daniel was all alone. He was one man standing alone in the midst of an utterly pagan culture. Think of Noah standing alone. Think of Job standing alone in their respective perverse cultures, uncompromising. So much that in Ezekiel 14, 14, it lists that I'm going to destroy these people. Even, listen to this, if Noah or Job or Daniel is the three names that gets mentioned is there, I will still destroy it, but I will preserve their lives. Daniel makes that story or reference. Because of his life. Job, Noah does the same. Ezekiel 14, 14. He made the hall of heroes that stood the test of time for their faithfulness. But what grounded him, what made him unwavering, what made him standing strong, even if it meant he was all alone, it was this. He knew who his God was. He knew that his God was all-powerful. He knew that his God will deliver him if he so chooses. In the final analysis, he knew that obeying and serving the one through God had to be the supreme goal in his life. Let me close. Go back to verses 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Listen to this. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That's our final point number seven. Daniel had a consistent prayer life. 
You may know the scriptures. You might have a shame, unashamed boldness. You may know your God. You may be very well versed. But if you do not have an intimate relationship with God through a fervent and consistent prayer life, you're going to abdicate. Daniel had a consistent prayer life. And prayer is the one, is glue that keeps us all together. And I know life gets busy, right? It gets busy. But you have to have that consistent prayer life. That was the key that hold Daniel together. He was faithful. God preserved him. All of these scenarios, death was waiting on the other side. The question is, when death waits for you, less. When someone's feelings might get hurt. When you might lose your job. If counsel meets and say, we will endorse homosexuality, do you find a way to reason? Well, we shouldn't because it might impact and do impact status on society. When you're in a boardroom and the board decides, well, we're going to go this way and you know it is wrong, do you reason, well, let me oppose this but in a non-biblical way? No. You're making excuses. Stand up and say, this is wrong. I oppose it. Why? Because the Bible says so. And because my God opposes it. Not because of what it might do to the community. Or in certain social impact studies. To find a way to not support it. If you don't support something, you don't support it because you draw the line where the Bible draws the line. Nothing more, nothing less. Let us pray. Praise us, Father, as we come to you, oh Lord, we, we are but men that want to stand firm in the midst of such moments where our faith gets tested. Lord, we know that on our own we will never stand, but by your inner strength, your enabling grace, Lord, we pray for this. We pray that where we have compromised in the past, where we are currently compromising either by the things we do, by the things we practice, that we will ask your forgiveness. And we will find ourselves in a place where we will do the things that pleases you. And we will be in a place that you have approved of and you sanction. And you will give us the courage to not live lives of compromise. In Christ's name we pray and give thanks. Amen.